You are listening to audio recorded at the Village Church. For more information, go to villagechurchbaltimore.com. And so this week, we're going to be talking about generosity in our relationships. So thinking of everything that we've, we've heard so far, we're taking this and we're applying it to the way that we spend time with each other the way that we view how we spend our time, where we spend our time, where we invest our time. We are all generous. We give all of the time that we have. The question is, what are we giving it to? So, um, to start where anybody would probably start with the topic of generosity, um... We're starting with the first couple of words. We're going to start with, or the first couple of letters there. Um, but I'm from the South, so we pronounce things funny. It's, it's gene, generosity. Is that it? Well, sorry, I'm a dad, and so I have dad jokes. <laughs> and they're really bad. But I'm kind of okay with it, because my kid's three, so it's like, I mean, when else can you do this in your life? When he's 20, he's going to be like, oh my gosh. Um, but so yeah, gene, generosity. Um, so what, what I want to point out and I, and I, I'm a visual person and so this, this really helped me. And so I hope it really helps you too. Uh, it also really helped my mom, uh, which was great. Um, but if you notice, so these, this is a pair of my jeans, but all my jeans actually look like this. The back left pocket has this weird mark on it. It's this weird rectangle. Um, and anybody want to guess what that is? Yeah, that's, that's where my wallet goes. Um, and there's this, it's this effect that happens when we place our wallet in our back pocket and day in, day out, we sit on it and we sit on it and we sit on it. It's the pressure and the tension and the stress of having something in that spot over a period of time over and over and over again, it leaves a mark that will never go away. And I want to suggest to us that that this is what generosity can do, is it leaves a mark on our lives. It leaves a mark on us in a way that can't be changed, but it won't happen if you do it one time. It's not a one-time thing. I could take a wallet that's 10 times the size of mine, a a George Costanza wallet, if you will, and I could put it in my back right pocket, which has no marks on it at all, and I could wear it around for an entire day. I could sit on it for a whole day. And at the end of the day, when I take that, that wallet out of the pocket, you won't ever know that it was ever even there. You won't even know that there was ever something. But it's time It's time that creates the mark. It's time that presses in. And a couple of interesting facts that I think are relevant to both genes and to generosity um, are the softer the material, the easier it is to make the mark. I've got genes that are are barely marked up that I've had longer uh, because they're really, really tough denim. um, And the the mark's not, not nearly as bad as these. And so I want to suggest, because God suggests it throughout the Old Testament, is that something, something crazy has happened, uh, something broken happened in the world, and it's, it's us, and our heart has become hard. 
Um, and, and obviously that's poetic language, so, you know, your, your heart's still your heart and it's still squishy and all that stuff. But, but poetically, your heart has become hard. All of our hearts have become hard. And what happens when we have soft hearts is that the mark can more easily be made. It just doesn't take as long or take as much time. Um, so I'll leave these here for visual aid. remember when you're taking communion later. <laughs> so, um, we're, we're going to primarily plant ourselves in Exodus, but I want to um, just bear with me. It's just part of who I am. I, just, <laughs> I love story, and so to, to understand where we're at, we've got to understand where we came from. So, we're just so close to Exodus, we just got to run through real quick, and, and I think it'll make a good, a good point. Um, so, generosity in our relationships is, uh, is one of, of patience and persistence. Um, when we have generosity in our relationships, because remember, what, what we are and what we are doing is we're becoming more and more like the creator that created us, because he's created us to be his image bearer. And where we understand that story is where they were talking about in the video when God creates this good world and he calls it good and he's defining everything he's making is good. And you notice that when he's creating things, he never makes anything and says, this, this is evil. He says it's good. This is good. And this is good. And this is good. And he makes us and he makes us in his image. And what this, what this is, is um, uh, it's, the, it's the Hebrew word selim. It means um, a statue or idol. Um, it's, it's the word that's used every other time when you're reading your Bible and, and you hear about an idol, don't make a graven image, that sort of thing. Selim, image. He makes an image. You're it. The reason he doesn't want you to make another idol is that he already made one. It's you. It's you. You're supposed to be his image to all of creation. And so what are statues for? What are these idols for? They're so that we can understand the character and the attributes of the one that's being worshipped through, through this, this image. And that was us. We're ministers or priests to all of creation. And that was our job. And he invites us. He he. he asks us to come into this relationship with him where we cultivate and we nurture the world, the good world that he's created to develop it and to grow it. They use the word subdue in the scriptures, which is a, it's a pretty decent translation, but it, it, can, it can also mean some pretty heinous things, but it's, it's to bring it into order. And so uh, it was me and my wife were talking about it the other day, and um, one of the things that, that I was expressing, she's really into gardening, um, was you could take a tomato plant, and most of you have grown tomato plants. Some of the some of the people have come up with this thing where you like you put the plant up here and it like grows down, right? Um, but that's a fairly new invention. Tomato plants, when you want to really develop them and get the most out of them, what the point of that is is that it needs to be standing upright so that the tomatoes don't begin to rot laying on the ground or animals get to them, things like that. And so naturally, a tomato plant's going to just grow across the ground. And you might get some vines that'll grab onto something, a nearby something, another plant or something, to bring it up and to allow those tomatoes to flourish and grow. 
But what, what we are are the ones who come along and say, here, let me take this and, and I'm going to attach it here, then I'm going to attach it here. And as things grow and develop, we begin to nurture those things and help them hold them up so that they can be more fruitful than they ever were before. That's what it is to be an image of God. That's what it is to, to subdue the earth and, and allow ourselves to rule alongside the creator of the universe. So that's where we're coming from. And that's what was supposed to happen. <laughs> and that's the story that God is driving us back towards to be. And that's who Jesus is, is, is he became that perfect image to do that perfect thing that we could not do in ourselves. So... This is where we're at at the beginning of the story, but we have a terrible problem where we decide that we wanted to define good and evil for ourselves. And so God has to decide, how is he going to reveal himself? Will he be patient with us? Will he pursue us and be persistent with us? Absolutely. Absolutely. Let me just give us a run-through. So generously, God breathes life into all creatures. He takes the time to plant a garden to put humanity in. He generously shares the rulership of the earth with humanity. He guards and protects the first murderer. He waits for a thousand years. Let's talk about patience. A thousand years of us just bringing chaos on the planet before the flood story even begins. He sets new rules with allowances for humanity's bloodlust after the flood. God mercifully stops at the attempted overthrow of his rule at the Tower of Babylon. He waits patiently for generations till he finds a man named Abram. And he calls him out of the same land that began the overthrow to begin with. He generously negotiates with Abraham to save the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. He turns the evil of Joseph's brothers for good for all. He gives Egypt and the Amorites hundreds of years to decide to do good. I want to just pick out the story of, of Sodom and Gomorrah um, real quick, just this, this negotiation that goes on between Abraham and, and God. Because it's really interesting to me. I'm in I'm in sales, and so I'm I'm fairly familiar with negotiation. And the way that it usually works is that you offer something, something. You know, I offer this at 100 bucks, right? And then they say, oh, 50 bucks, and you go 99 dollars. <laughs> you know, but there's a negotiation. It's a back and forth. But this negotiation is so peculiar it's so odd because what happens is is that God brings Abraham into this what's about to happen he says, we're, we're going down to Sodom and Gomorrah because we've heard the cry of the oppressed we've heard that the cities are oppressing people and I cannot stand by and let this happen because no good God could so Abraham having some investment there because of Lot. He says, well, what, what if there's like 50 people that are righteous? What if 50 people are in right relationship 
they're, they're doing right, they're not harming anyone. Would you save the cities for 50? And you would think that God would go, well, what about 65? But no, he goes, okay, sure. Yeah, 50 people? Okay. So then Abraham goes, well, I'm, maybe I started too high. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. But so what about, what about 45? What, what if it was 45? And God goes, okay, yeah, 45. Okay. Forty? Sure. Thirty. Yep. Yep, thirty. I'll do it for thirty. I would save all of them, all of them for thirty. Okay. Twenty. Yep. Ten? Mm-hmm. I challenge you to go read the story again because it's not God that stops the negotiation. Abraham says, I, I won't ask any more. Just ten. But you're forced to think, what if? What if we would have pressed in just a little bit more? What if we said five? He's never even resisted. He hasn't said, well, I mean, you're kind of getting close here. I mean, ten's, ten's asking a lot to save an entire city for just ten people. None of that. Immediately, yeah, no problem. His, his law is love, as we read earlier, or sang earlier. I'm even tempted to say that he would have saved the city for one. He is patient with us, and he pursues us, and is so persistent in calling us to himself. A generous relationship is one that grows also in mercy and forgiveness. And just as we have to contemplate on how we should be generous in our relationships, patient in our relationships, persistent in our relationships, a generous relationship like the one that God has with humanity forces us to also think about how we need to be merciful how we need to grow in mercy, how we need to grow in forgiveness. It is really, really challenging to think about what it would look like to actually be generous in my relationships the way that God is generous. If you can't, I mean, just look on Facebook and get offended. <laughs> somebody is going to say something that's going to just hurt somebody, right? And I think that's what is supposed to make us so different. Is that we're not the people that are called to set up rules and laws to, to prevent people from speaking whatever it is that they want to speak. We're the people that are called to love each other in the midst of that in spite of those things. Does that mean that we don't pursue trying to bring people into a frame of mind that's, that's unified with Scripture? 
not necessarily with our own opinions, but with Scripture. No, we still need to do that. But we're supposed to be a community of people that are so generous in our relationships with each other that when the opportunity arises for us to become offended or for us to be wronged, and maybe we get wronged, that we're patient with each other, understanding that we've all come from different places, we're all bent towards different things and different opinions and thoughts, and we give in. We give in to the idea that maybe we can be like God just a little bit more than what we were yesterday. And just because I didn't grow up where you grew up or and your political views might be different or the way that you view what the good life looks like or how we should dress or any of the hot topics that are on the news or Twitter or Facebook or whatever else, no matter how we fall on those, I think what makes us unique and different or what should is that for us, we are patient and we are kind with each other and we can put hand to hand with one another even if one person believes in something completely different as far as the way that we should behave as humans. So, God challenges us at this because he is patient and he is persistent, but he also, in our relationships, we see that he is merciful and forgiving. And, and what he does is, is he, he throws down these surprise cards of mercy and surprise cards of forgiveness. He's more forgiving than we could imagine before we ever found out that he was forgiving. All you got to do is look to Jesus to, to just see that as an example. But we're in Exodus, so let's look there too. So where we're at is the people of Israel, so God has been working with humanity and pursuing humanity, and the strategy has moved to this one man, and this one man has had family. And uh, as I would mentioned, that God was patient with Egypt and the Amorites for hundreds of years, patient hoping that they would decide to do good. But instead, they enslaved a people, and God again heard the cry of the oppressed. And so, he freed the slaves in Egypt, and he brought them out to the foot of a mountain to begin a relationship with them. And in the relationship, in any, in any covenant relationship like this, you have terms, obligations, um, one of the perks of the relationship was that God was going to dwell in their midst. And immediately it should bring our minds back to the beginning where he walked with humanity in the cool of the day. But to do this with a good God, we can't just be ourselves defining good and evil for ourselves. We we have to let him define good and evil for us. And that's what these laws of love are really all about. So we're just going to run through the first couple. Uh, you'll recognize these as the Ten Commandments. Um, we're just going to go through, through a few because I want to point something out that he, as he describes himself here. 
And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me and showing steadfast love to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. And while Moses and God are having this conversation, (laughs) down below, this very thing is being broken. The people of Israel have decided, we're not exactly sure what happened to this Moses guy, and we're out here, and there's there's only one way that we really know of to, to worship a God. We Remember, these people have been in Egypt for so long that the people that are actually here at the foot of this mountain have never been free before. And so all they know is what they've grown up in, watching the Egyptians worship through idolatry, um, seeing statues that image their gods. And so they ask for one for themselves. They asked to make this Yahweh God an image. And so uh, Moses' brother Aaron does it. He, he makes this image that we know from the story is, is the opposite of what we should be doing because we're the image. So while this is happening, God is up on the mountain talking with Moses. And another thing that's happening is they're, they're setting up what should it look like for God to dwell in the midst of his people. And they decided they needed to make a space, a a sacred space, this tent where God would dwell. And what is different about this is up until this point, God's out in front of them. There's a tent, and it's it's out. If you want to inquire of the Lord, you would go outside of the camp to do so. But the tent they're talking about, they're going to bring it in the middle. And and it's actually really cool if you, like, draw out, like, as, as you read through the Scriptures... All the tribes are all around, and he is in the center of the camp. He's in the midst of his people. This is the plan. This is what he wants to show. And the reason we find out that he wants to show all this is because he wants to show his wisdom and his goodness to the nations. This isn't just for Israel, not even here, not even in Exodus. He's wanting to show his goodness to all the nations. He just wants to do it as a picture through this people. So, unfortunately, God does have to deal with the sin. But what's odd, so Moses, after, after dealing with the sin and, and, and the people that, that didn't partake, they, they've, they've stepped aside, segregated themselves, and um, Moses goes back up the mountain. And God's like, hey... Um, we need to kind of change some things. We need to kind of change the way that we're doing it. You guys can still go in. We're going to do the promised land thing, no problem. Go on in. All that's fine. I just can't come with you. 
And Moses is like, no deal. No deal. You have to come. You have to be in our midst. Your name is at stake. And so something has to change. And what it is is God pulls back the curtain on how merciful and how much he forgives. So you remember hearing what he had said before. Hear it again because the story actually starts over. It's in 20, he's at the top of the mountain with Moses and he lays out all the the terms and he lays out the whole thing about the tent and then Moses comes down the mountain and then back up the mountain and it starts over. The story starts over and this thing is different and this thing is really important. Listen. So... Moses is up on the mountain and God descends down in a cloud and in uh, Exodus 24, uh, verse 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord. And this is the personal name of God, Yahweh, this is when you see Lord like that. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love to thousands, forgiving iniquities and transgressions and sin, but will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Did you catch it? Did you see? Something was pulled out. Something else was brought in. The terms for his forgiveness... And the terms for the guilty are gone. It's not to those who hate me. It's gone. And it's not to those who love me and keep my commandments. It's gone. It's not there. You can read it again. I read it several times because I didn't believe it. But what's put in in its place is this long list of attributes. So long and so impactful that this is the most described, even in the scriptures, of who God is. It's repeated over and over and over again. This impacted them so much that the prophets had to write about it. The historians had to write about it. Merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. This steadfast, so you could use the word loyal there as well. It's, it's this loyal love. Nothing can break it. Keeping steadfast love to thousands. This other thing, that you, I wasn't planning on talking about it, but I just it's, it's so interesting to see it. If you read it just poetically, the way that it's broken out, thousands threes and fours. Thousands. Steadfast love to thousands. Threes and fours. Our God is a God that when moving into generous relationship with others shows mercy and forgiveness. And we are challenged 
to show mercy and forgiveness. It's hard. It is hard to be in that kind of a relationship because if anybody has been wronged before, I won't even ask you to raise your hand if you've been wronged before because it's a 100% ratio. We've all been hurt. But forgiveness like this, mercy like this, this is what God calls us to, to be image bearers of him. We must act as he acts, and he produces mercy on us. And we should do the same. He forgives. Even when the act is completely unforgivable by our standards. So, last thing, and I'll, I'll be done. Um, a generous relationship sacrifices to be together. Remember we were talking about the tabernacle, this, this tent, this place where God was going to dwell in the midst of his people. And just like before, they describe what this thing's going to be, what this thing's going to look like. And the way that it gets put together is from the generosity of the people. If you look in Exodus 35, uh, verse 5, Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution gold, silver, and bronze, and the list goes on so long that I'm just not even going to read it. But it is a massive list. And you know what happens? When the people of Israel see the mercy and the goodness and the generosity of God bestowing love and mercy and compassion on them, they give to the point that they're told to stop hey, we just can't use your resources anymore. We have too much already. A generous relationship sacrifices to be together. They understood the point. They understood why they were giving was that all of their resources were building something. It was building a place, a sacred space, where God would dwell in their midst and that is something worth sacrificing to. Especially a God who shows that much patience and who pursues and who shows mercy and forgives. That's a God worth sacrificing to. Sacrificing our resources, our time, our energy. And we're to image this God. We're to be like him. And so we, as we think about the relationships that we are in, the relationships that shape and really mold the, the lives, that, what we call our life, we're challenged to think through, what does this look like for us? What does this look like for us to be able to have mercy like this, to have forgiveness like this, to sacrifice like this, to be together? This... Um, this word for generosity is um, it's the it's the same word that's used for for prince or noble, uh, but what's interesting is it's not it's not a title. 
It's not a position, it's an attitude. It's the type of a person that you are. And what, what we know about the, those who are noble in this type of generosity, just by just use the word and, and look for it throughout the scriptures, what you'll find is, is that they're always giving. This generosity, it requires giving, right? They're always giving to people who cannot return the favor. This is the type of generosity that we're to be. Whether or not it's ever reciprocated from others in relationship with us, that doesn't change that we would be like God. How often is it that he gives and shows mercy and loving kindness to us and we don't reciprocate, even in our own lives? So, as we prepare our hearts and our minds for the table, and we come and we take the meal of the body and the blood of Jesus. We know that generosity is not our natural default. It's because we need Jesus. We need his spirit to empower us to live like this, to be like this. We can, we can be pumped up about being like this for a short period of time, but it's going to take supernatural intervention in our lives to be like this consistently, day in, day out, wearing away. And so we have some decisions to make. Will we have soft hearts so that it's easier? Will we be persistent at being generous, or will we do it every once in a while? And so as we think of, of coming to the table, and the music team can... You can come up and we'll begin to play. As we're thinking of coming to the table, when you come, come and come and ask for a soft heart. Come and ask if he could empower you to commit to a daily sense of generosity in your relationships, in the way that you view your stuff. Come and seek patience. Come and ask him to show you all the times that he's been merciful and all the times that he's forgiven so that you will be inspired by your creator to also forgive, to also be generous. Ask to be made into a generous noble for all of creation, giving even when you won't receive in return. If you want to stand, stand. If you need to sit, sit. Spend some time in prayer. And when you're ready, the table is open. Come and take the body and the blood.